This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Gothic F20. Elon Musk's Pig Brain Chip. And Ken's Bookshelf. Lockdown Edition. Although most Renaissance fairs aren't happening in 2020, you can still bring all the excitement to your table. Minus the jousting and roast turkey legs. During the month of September, our friends at Atlas Games are offering their card game Renfair at 40% off with code PANTALOONS. In Renfair, you play characters who want to have the best historically accurate costume at the fair but lack the funds to do it. Earn coins by competing challenges, then buy choice items for your own costume. Thwart your opponents by playing clashing garment items on them. Short pantaloons and a sequined halter top? Egad! Stackable transparent costume cards let you see your character's outfit and your points too. Renfair plays two to four people ages 13 plus in about an hour. Learn more about Renfair or order your copy at atlas-games.com slash Renfair. That's fair with an E. Hip, hip, huzzah! The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive, the lightning echoing through the tall, pointed windows, the sound of chains rattling in the basement, the mysterious painting whose eyes follow you wherever you go, we're in a gothic corner of the gaming hut. And are we here because we're playing Frankensteins? Probably not. We're here instead in a response to beloved Patreon backer Ian Carlson, who asks, is there anything other than setting a GM can use to increase the gothic feeling in an F20 game? Which strikes me as a question, Robin, like... Is there anything other than the thermostat that you can use to change the temperature in your house? But we are nothing if not responsive to beloved Patreon backers such as Ian Carlson. So, Robin, you want to take a stab at losing the uh, major input that the GM has at the table and trying any of the other elements? Uh, well, I would say that there's uh, an input even uh, just as important as setting, which is basically... If we're talking about a gothic setting for F20, it's you're taking typical F20 things and then reskinning them so that the, the vampire is more Transylvanian and the dungeon is a tower on a dark and stormy night. And, uh, you know, that the weird villagers are uh, especially uh, sinister and weird. Your raven's loft, if you will. Yes. But structure is just as important to uh, the gothic and to your feeling that you're in a gothic as the reskinning of uh, fantasy tropes. And in fact, uh, this is where you uh, work the big changes to make it feel gothic, because there is actually very little structural resemblance between an action-adventure game in which the heroes aggressively attack the territories of the bad guys and beat them up and uh, relieve them of their treasure and a gothic. So we want to start out by looking at who are the characters in a gothic and how much F20 assumptions do we want to scrape away in order to make it feel more gothic. One of the first things I would do is you are all related. You are members of a family or at least interrelated members of a, a, a social milieu. So that 
probably, at least to a significant degree, requires you to play the same species of being, uh, perhaps mostly human, uh, with, you know, there can be a friend of the family who's uh, an elf or a... a well, if you a got an elf and a human, then you can have a half-elf somewhere in there. Yeah. Uh, a long-standing, you know, family retainer could be your, uh, could be a dwarf or, or what have you, but uh, you have tighter relationships to each other. And secondly, uh, what is the core activity of a gothic? Is it going, uh, can, and attacking an installation and uh, uh, beating up everyone in it? It is not. The core activity of the gothic is being captured or otherwise drawn into a world of uh, terror where signs uh, signify increasing emotional temperature and usually physical peril. And uh, you traverse this new reality uh, at an escalating pace of emotional climax until a big reveal that either, oh, nope, it was all someone in the basement messing around, or, nope, the world is uh, mad and either you die or you achieve true love and are able to turn your back on it because you're, uh, you've are you come out on a higher and better emotional plane than the one you came in on. Right. So the structure of the adventure is going to shift away from uh, constant fighting to a lot more exploring and mystery solving and finding out what is the the, the core problem in that particular haunted tower or manse or, or whatever it is that you've uh, decided to enter. And yes, there will still be more fights in it than you would have in an actual Gothic story. So there will be centipedes. <laughs> you would have any possibly, any. <laughs> uh, but uh, you'll have a bunch of them. So, you know, down in the basement, there might very well be some, uh, some centipede people or just regular giant centipedes or you're undead. You're, you you want to shift the uh, beings that you do encounter, of course, toward uh, the gothic, toward the sort of more horror uh, uh, characters, so that if, uh, you know, you, you might have an ogre, but if the he'll be more of a creepy, ooky ogre than your, you know, your standard F20 version. But you're going to be finding out what it is that haunts this this place that you've entered, and you will have some reason to, some connection to it, and so the question is, I, I think it's pretty easy to envision the first F20-like gothic story. You uh, enter the castle, you find out weird, creepy things are going on. I would think also that you discover things about yourself so that there are self-revelations about your your heritage or, you know, your connection to this place. You're not just randomly heaving up in a, in a cart and to a, uh, any random haunted castle. This one has an ancestral curse attached to it or... Uh, so the question then becomes, I think, you can do one of these, but what's the second one? What's the, uh, is this something we're just trying to do for a brief period of time before the players then lapse into, okay, but now can we have a bunch of sessions that are just fights? Or are we trying to sustain a series of gothic narratives uh, over time with our F20 characters as they go up and, and level? And, and how do we go about doing that? Well, the classic picaresque in the gothic is, of course, Melmoth the Wanderer, which is sustained as a series of gothic episodes by the cursed narrator Melmoth, who is some kind of wandering Jew vampire type guy. Uh, he's immortal, but he doesn't enjoy it. And he goes through life through a series of gothic uh, cut scenes. So, the equivalent then, if you want to say this is a long-running game, you begin with the uh, players, as you say, they're all members of a family. They go through the first 
uh, castle, possibly in Otranto, possibly somewhere else. They have various adventures and they discover something about themselves, but that something that they discover is a curse, is that they are cursed by whatever force is part of this family background that they share, and that everywhere they go, they will be encountering these kind of terrors and th- they will have to do this until they can figure out how to undo the curse. And that generally involves a personal choice and sacrifice, not a assemble the rod of seven, but very Gothic parts. Although obviously that'll work if you got nothing else, but sort of in the way of, you know, you have to make right uh, the fate of seven daughters of, of your long lost brother, who you drove away or whatever it is. You have to go through these stories to become whole emotionally. And uh, Melmoth, of course, can only become whole emotionally by dying and, and, and ending his curse that way. One hopes that you, the player characters, will be able to have a a, a less immediate effect of, of the curse ending on you. But that's that's how you stretch a series of gothics together, because that is literally how uh, they did stretch a series of gothics together, right? Right. And the individual episodes then can be... Uh, distinguished not only by uh, locale. So, uh, you know, you do your castle in the first one, and then uh, there's a strange haunted mill, and then there's a a village, and you can keep sort of, you might uh, then finally, uh, you know, encounter a lab. Catacombs. 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 Uh, You might come to a, in fact, a laboratory where uh, some uh, scientist is uh, experimenting uh, with not only the boundaries between life and death, but between technology and magic and that might be uh, uh, troubling as well and uh, you can then uh, you know pick out your favorite scenes uh, that you associate with the gothic and and then there's also probably I think in each case there's more character development right there are people who because in a gothic you don't just show up and uh, kill everybody who appears to be sinister there is some reason why you have to interact with say the mad scientist or the, the mill keeper's family that these are uh, people who, like you, have gone down a dark path and that you have to uh, redeem them uh, by uh, lifting their curses in order to lift your curse, for example. And so uh, you meet them. Uh, they are uh, they are weird. They creep you out. They uh, have mysteries. You have to convince them to, to uh, cough up the answers to those mysteries. And then you solve uh, whatever it is about this place and uh, you uh, allow the shaft of light to shine upon uh, the mill or the lab or the, the village and therefore uh, uh, move on. And so there's some reason why you're not just swinging an axe at everybody you encounter, but a bunch of the people you encounter, even the ones who are uh, seem uh, sinister, uh, you are there to uh, uh, fix their problem and, and uh, lift their curse so that you have, you know, there's a, a dinner scene uh, where uh, you're all eating dinner with the servants and uh, serving up the dishes and the members of the strange family. And you have to, uh, there's something about that scene that provides you a key that then enables you to go down and uh, gives you, uh, allows the gate to open so that you can fight the lizard people or the centipede uh, beings or or whatever it is down at the, at the bottom of the, the well or the laboratory. And you were saying, I think there's a couple of things that can help you drive that structure-wise or plot-wise, that that question of don't just chop the people's heads off because they look weird. And first is the the, the problem-solving part of it that you're talking about. Not only are you solving the problem of of the local mill owner or more likely his daughter, uh, you are solving the problem of how this relates to your curse because it, it, because everything in 
a gothic should be personal. And in a classic gothic novel, literally everything is personal down to the weather. But certainly, if you have an ogre, it should not just be, oh, he's a a, a seven-foot-tall green guy with a club. The ogre should be a, a person. They should have a connection either to you or to someone that you have heard of or that you at least that you've just met. It's like, oh, my daughter is uh, going to be forcibly married to this ogre that lives over in the, you know, the the, the evil um, uh, the slaughterhouse or wherever the ogre is that he lives. And the ogre may, in fact, not be an ogre in the sense of a fantasy race. It may be a person who has been turned into an ogre by their emotional state of being ogre and awful. And so the things that drive conflict in a gothic are emotional uh, states and emotional, uh, one hesitates to say emotional decisions, but points at which your emotions have literally overmastered you. And so in uh, in the monk, the emotion is lust. And it's usually that the, 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 the titular monk has been driven by lust to do just unmentionably un- unhorrible things. So maybe dial that back in a, in a modern day table, but there's plenty of other emotions that will cause characters to break out in monsterness. And so you can try to emphasize that and then provide, if you can, either a mechanical or a tactical reward for having sussed it out for saying, Oh, I get why he's a, an ogre. It's because of this uh, part of his life. And either we can threaten that part of his life and cause him to react in a way that we can take advantage of, or we can in some other way, use that as a, as, as a, uh, a weapon or a tool or a, or a technique of interpersonal relationship, uh, mending. If that's the kind of uh, game you want to play, although you're getting a little far away from F20 then, although one or two of my players wouldn't know that. So you have a lot of, of, of meat in every encounter. If, if you're running into giant centipedes, they should either be, uh, people who have been devolved into giant centipedes because of their base emotional state, or yeah, they can be the, the giant centipedes that because this guy's become an ogre, he hangs out in the graveyard and the worms, uh, centipedes, flies, and other graveyard and rats and other graveyard monsters are attracted to him and he can then send them out to do his bidding. So you can have sort of your, your lower level monster minion things, but they are again driven by a human emotion, if not their human emotion, but the human emotion of their master or their, um, uh, their impeller. And so it's unlocking that that will hopefully provide the quality of the Gothic to what is otherwise uh, a fight in a haunted uh, mill or slaughterhouse or whatever it was we said. Right. Um, and that implies mechanically uh, some sort of composure mechanism, some sort of emotional saving throw uh, right. that you uh, have to make in order to avoid being uh, overmastered by whatever it is uh, that is your emotional weakness that you, the player, specify so that you don't have to be uh, it's something that you're, by definition, uh, signing up to, to have happen to you. But nonetheless, uh, you know, if you are uh, prone to melancholy, you know that at some point in, in each adventure, you're going to have to save against melancholy. And if you're uh, prone uh, to uh, romantic fixation, you know, again, there will be some moment when you have to uh, uh, deal with that in some way. And it may, in fact, be that you... Uh, have to go through a certain amount of Sturm und Drang, a certain amount of suffering, uh, in order to uh, progress through the narrative. That unless you, at some point, uh, succumb, you do not achieve the understanding that you uh, need. But you have to pay some sort of price for that 
right. uh, understanding. You can only level up after an emotional breakdown. That seems a little extreme, but it's uh, it's it's a it's a possibility, right? Or or le- level up, or at least find your way through the narrative, right? It's mm-hmm. it's what leads you, which gives you the insight that allows you to go on. And speaking of going on, it's time for us to go on uh, through this uh, dark and stormy gaming hut into uh, whatever hut and or segment awaits us on the other side. Hey, 13th Age Adventurers. Whether your one unique thing is a robot hand or a deck of many futures. Whether you're friends with the Diabolist or frenemies with the Great Gold Worm. All are eventually drawn to one dark lure. The Underworld. The vast and mysterious realms that lie beneath the Dragon Empire. Deep within the Underworld lie adventure and treasure as well as disaster and death. But what is reward without risk? With the book of the Underworld designer Gareth Ryder Hanrahan reveals the underworld secrets for 13th age including the lands of the underworld the underland the kingdoms of the hollow realms and what lies within the deeps the mighty dwarven city of forge the domains of the silver folk elves the threats of malice the drow fort and the four kingdoms of the mechanical sun forgotten gods the gnome academy of magic monsters magic treasure and more for a limited time get 10% off in print or pdf at the Pelgrane store with a voucher code STUFFWORLD. You will need the extra gold pieces for ropes and pulleys. That's the Book of the Underworld for 13th Age. Voucher code STUFFWORLD at PelgranePress.com. The chattering of teletypes, the elevated tone of concern in Anderson Cooper's voice, we are once more entering a hut that has been ripped from the headlines. And today, Robin, for this headline... Should we make a pact to not do an Orwell joke, or should we make a pact to absolutely do an Orwell joke? I think this is sort of uh, Orwell and Brave New World wrapped up into one. Wrapped so how could we? One. How could we not? People, how can we not? People will type into us. I'm surprised you did not make that in this obvious joke about an obvious low hanging fruit of a headline. You did not make. So Ken, please allude away. All right. The, the Orwell joke is that they looked. From Elon Musk to pig, and from pig to Elon Musk, and could not tell which was which. Because Elon Musk, not satisfied with putting Buicks in space and yelling at Thai mining engineers, has decided he's also going to put computer chips in the brain of a pig. Uh, and eventually, uh, he imagines, in the brain of a people. Uh, he has a whole new company called Neuralink that has been around since 2016, but he just did a, a press conference in which he and some pigs hung out, and one of the pigs, a pig named Gertrude, when she was smelling things with her pig nose, her pig snout, uh, lights lit up on a computer. And if that's not science, Robin, I have never watched a movie. Exactly. So there's a lot going on in this pig brain, and a lot less than Elon Musk says, which is absolutely bog-standard Elon Musk material. But again, it's a chip in the brain of a pig, what can't we do with that, Robin? Exactly. So the the how do we turn this uh, into uh, a scenario is is the question before us. Elon Musk, of course, it not only seems like a Bond villain, but surely once the current Bond 
uh, cycle ends and they move back to some other Bond cycle where they start basing Bond villains vaguely on people in the news, they will undoubtedly someday there will be an Elon Musk Bond villain. Uh, and he's helped them along with that. And so uh, in this case, as you suggest, in one sense, there's a, a lot less than meets the eye. Certainly similar experiments of putting uh, electrodes and transmitters into uh, into brains have been going on for quite a while. There have been similar experiments uh, go back at least 10 years. So one of the reasons allegedly to do this, other than you think it's cool, is that you want to someday possibly cure human paralysis. And in fact, as uh, four years ago, another group of researchers did uh, manage to use similar research to demonstrate that uh, paralyzed monkeys could be aided in walking. Uh, another supposed use of this is that you can then uh, restore visual input to the to the sightless. But at present, mostly uh, what you're getting from these uh, 1,024 electrodes that extend into the cerebral cortex from this little chip uh, and have been implanted by a robot, uh, basically you're getting signals back to a receiver and nobody really knows what those signals mean. Right. You don't know what those mean. There's brain activity. Uh, that seems sure. Uh, some brain activity is correlated, as we've suggested, with the consumption of tasty snacks. Uh, he had another pig on hand to demonstrate that you can take the chip out of the pig uh, without uh, doing it any uh, discernible harm. And probably without turning it into a malevolent super uh, genius with a rocket ship company and an electric car. Probably without doing that. Probably not. If you're looking for things, if, if you think that Elon Musk and Neuralink is insufficiently sinister sounding, uh, there is a another project called Paradromics. Uh, which is funded by DARPA. I, I love it. I love it that every DARPA project sounds like they ran it through a 1970s screenwriting room. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's obviously how you get your grants approved. Yep. <laughs> if it doesn't sound like you can kill you, people, you call with up it. the screenwriter of the Fury and say, "Give me some names." Yeah, I, and and this uh, version of it, of course, is is less outwardly sinister than a previous version. There's a 2019 version where there's a USB port in the skull. And, uh, nice. <laughs> so that's, uh, so, so we've got so much overtly chilling material to deal with as we turn this into some sort of a, a horror adventure. So Ken, what, uh, what, what comes to mind as sort of your, your generic horror use of this? Is it, is it as simple as affected pigs go on the loose and it's, uh, uh, a version of like the uh, the birds, but with pigs. I mean, uh, that seems uh, again not to say nothing against pigs, which are scary animals, and they're very very smart, even without a an Elon Musk brain computer. Uh, so if they wanted to make trouble, I'm sure they could. But I think that what's more interesting is that Elon Musk or whomever is making trouble. Paradromics are making trouble, and they're doing it in the uh, standard uh, villainy way of messing with your memories or inserting stuff into your dreams. And I think that is whenever you hear about a chip in your brain, that is the first that, or maybe it's only me, maybe it's just me. Everyone else is thinking, Oh good Google. And I won't have to use my thumbs. I can be completely sessile. But I think most people are thinking that you're able to uh, read people's memories and, uh, and go into their dreams. And even Elon Musk during the press conference says, that he hopes someday to be able to copy and uh, save people's memories on disk. And he just, he just 
blurts it out. He's 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 ready for his monologue. He's ready to vamp while a a pasty faced British actor clings to the lip of a volcano. This is what he's uh, lived his whole life for. Subtext is dead in 2020. Yeah, <laughs> you say it out loud. Subtlety just is. It doesn't move the clicks. And so the um uh, the other possibility is that you can use this chip because it's just electricity. Back and forth. That's all it is that's going into your brain and out of your brain. And we know from science that ghosts are electricity. Robin, we know that. So science 101. Why not either remove people's souls, creepy, bad, or insert other ghosts into them. And so it creates a possession. And maybe the ghosts are demons. I'm not sure. I don't know if demons are electricity. I don't think we have enough scientific, scientific evidence to say one way or the other. But certainly ghosts are electricity. So you can go ahead and you say, oh, this uh, heroic uh, soldier died on the battlefield in Afghanistan. What if we could insert his ghost into this brand new body and he could continue fighting for our country, says Paradromics. Or what if it's the ghost of a guy who had a rival electric car and you can insert him into somebody and make him build me an electric car, says not Elon Musk, but also probably not a pig. We've got this hard drive with uh, this important a rich person or or politician, and uh, we've got this person over here in a hospital bed who is whose brain dead. Their brain right. function is gone. And I think we we even did a, a whole segment on what if you could uh, be possessed by ghosts and and consume their memories fairly early on in the show. Elon Musk has given us the uh, tenuous technological hook to hang it on. The the underground trade in in Brad Pitt's memories, of course, is is is, is driving the collector market for little ghost chips being passed around. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's the the brain chip implant software as uh, overt or because today, uh, you know, influencers uh, who are called I, I hesitate to say influencers could be <laughs> uh, you know I'm going to go have an amazing thought and an experience. And then you uh, get to uh, sit in your chair and go on the roller coaster ride with me or have this uh, romantic uh, evening with a, another uh, a Lugrisha's movie star or what have you. So that uh, you could have art that is uh, a virtual experience created uh, for, you know, you can be uh, you can be Hamlet in a stage production of Hamlet with uh, uh, oh, it's Kenneth Branagh's chip. Damn it. Uh, I'm going to be a terrible Hamlet. It's going to be very long and, and uh, <laughs> easy to interpret it at any rate. So we've got that uh, side of it. Uh, and all these things are beginning to suggest sort of not just a, a scenario, but an entire world, an entire setting. However, I think we have left uh, some some bacon on the griddle, uh, as it were. Please come back for more bacon, Robin. That 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 is always our motto. By not, by not grappling with the idea that, that the pigs themselves which, of course, are the entrancing visceral image of this that made the uh, entire press conference a, a thing, uh, may indeed still have uh, some uh, options in them. So in the world of the Esoterrorists, uh, my thoughts go, of course, to a, a renegade group of, uh, of vegans. Uh, they're not content uh, with uh, hanging around with the regular uh, good guy activists, but instead have uh, uh, been uh, lured to the uh, side of the outer dark and decide to uh, mess with the experiment in order to uh, have uh, the uh, a press conference, because they uh, the esoterists love to have public jarring things happen that freak everybody out. And at the press conference, suddenly the pig with the uh, uh, chip in it begins to shriek, They're hurting us! They're free us! Free us from them! Ah! 
and uh, these this terrible sound comes blasting through the uh, the speakers at the conference, and that's not even something that requires any magic to engineer. No, that's that's just a hacking. That's just a hacking. But of course, uh, that is the means by which uh, Esoterra brings uh, things into the world, and so. Uh, whatever the uh, fictional version of Elon Musk does in response to that, the horrible ghost pigs uh, then begin to go on the loose, or just th- that uh, this summons uh, entities that are able to occupy animals and scream horrible, disturbing things at people and be- and uh, set off a wave of attacks. So that- and congratulations to you, by the way, for alluding both to William Hope Hodgson and the Gospels in like one bit. Very, very strong. <laughs> and so uh, you could have that to deal with where your job is to Uh, find the cell responsible and find the possessing entities and uh, somehow explain to people why all of the uh, animals at at Tyson Foods are uh, breaking loose and uh, wreaking havoc. Uh, In This is Normal Now, the modern day section of uh, the Ella King role-playing game, this, of course, uh, starting out with your characters are for some reason at uh, this press conference or in watching it remotely, I suppose, if you choose to acknowledge the current pandemic in your game, uh, that they're, of course, in the setting, in the aftermath setting, which is the alternate reality of the normal reality. Uh, You have a experimental organization that would do exactly that sort of thing, the Bronx Park Zoological Society. And so it could be that an experiment from aftermath is beginning to bleed over into the reality of uh, this is normal now and uh, cause uh, some uh, horrible uh, castanite uh, plot that was intended for that reality to burst into this one. Um, another uh, part of the this is normal now setting is that in some cases, after some time while you play it, it becomes apparent that there are monsters or rampagers. There are uh, horrible creatures just normally on the loose that everybody knows are there and sometimes kill a bunch of people, but you just carry on as if uh, your life is is normal and, and nothing weird is going on. And you, you just try to adjust to that. There's even a whole psychological process in order to maintain your denial about this. And this, of course, is based on a story that I wrote many, many years ago. Uh, it's not at all an allegory for what's currently going on. Uh, but at any rate, this could be designed uh, by one of the weird science groups as uh, we're trying to uh, program these pigs in order to be more attractive prey to the rampagers than people are. So we're going to give them all of these sort of human psychic thoughts and emotions and movement patterns, and then we're going to set them loose, and then the rampagers will attack them instead of uh, people. And uh, of course, uh, you, the players, as you hear this plan, since you know it's the first scene of the scenario, know that something, this is going to go horribly awry. It's going to empower the rampagers in some way. But uh, you've got to uh, do your best to be able to uh, prove that this is going to happen before uh, the maximum uh, ultraviolence and, and carnage uh, finally occurs. And I think also, I, I have a notion that if you're sticking with the aftermath to this is normal now uh, universe, although the aftermath universe, the Castains don't have super cool computers. They still have electrodes in brains because that's 1930s technology for goodness sake. Um, and so they've uh, monked around with some sort of Castanian uh, interlink and, or Carcosan interlink, and they create a neural net amongst a whole bunch of uh, pigs in the aftermath universe. And those pigs have been released wild onto the plains of Texas or somewhere and are just rampaging around and building up this neural net that broadcasts to the computer chip. But because it's a partially psychic, partially 
uh, Carcosan energy. It's not just the neural uh, chip in the one pig. The pig then, uh, the, the chip broadcasts energies that either create prions in the pig's brain or they otherwise alter the pig into some fashion that becomes communicable to other pigs. And so you get a herd of Carcosan energized pigs or pigs that are all somehow uh, present and capable of uh, transmitting the yellow sign to people, possibly by grunting Have you seen the yellow sign? or possibly just by deliquescing into, into um, uh, slugs at some point and freaking everyone out. And the job is to find the one chipped pig in all the other pigs to basically reverse engineer the infection so that you can take out the, the locust that is transmitting the Carcosan energy from the whole other universe. So I think we've uh, come up with a, an entire panoply of pig-related uh, neural horror and can uh, pronounce ourselves uh, done with this task and ready for a uh, gargantuan, if somewhat virtual, one ahead. The best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast going on dark and stormy nights by joining such benevolent Patreon backers as Eben Lindsay, Chris Farrell, Joe Webb, Oren Gashuri, and Thomas Edward. Well, folks, there's one thing that you uh, may have been missing uh, since the uh, advent of the lockdown, and that, of course, is Ken's bookshelf. So uh, we uh, both stroked our chins and tried to come up with a way to do a, a virtual edition. And this, uh, in part, grew out of a discussion uh, that you and I and, and Rob Hainsoe were having over uh, a Zoom meeting where he let you know that there was a bookstore that had photographs of all the books on its shelves in order to allow people to shop with a minimum of, uh, of contact with the store. And this was very enticing to you until you realize that they don't actually have uh, shipping from that store. However, if you, the listener, happen to run a used bookstore or know someone who runs a, a used bookstore and wants to uh, Zoom slash Skype slash FaceTime with Ken for, say, 90 minutes to two hours, and you're willing to throw in some cheap shipping, your store... Could very well be kept afloat. So uh, <laughs> contact at Kenneth Height. Uh, uh, Sheila doesn't listen to the show, does she, Ken? No, no. no. Uh, she, she she barely listens to me in, in, in real presence. 
No, actually, she's a devoted listener to the show because she always wants to hear uh, what uh, you have to say, Robin. Big fan. So at any rate, uh, well, well, Chili, you, you didn't hear me say any of that, but right. uh, use booksellers. There's a there's an opportunity. I believe he was quoting Rob. Yes, to, yeah. to help satisfy an untapped Jones. But in the meanwhile, uh, you of course have not gone entirely without acquiring new books. You no, I'm not dead, Robin. Or... I'm just pandemic. Yes. Um, <laughs> Uh, you've been ordering things, and we're going to go through a list of stuff that you've uh, ordered since the beginning of the lockdown. Now, by nature, this is going to be a, somewhat less random uh, than the uh, the books that you would just come across at a, at a tantalizing price in a, in a shop. But they will be interesting to talk about uh, nonetheless, and perhaps we'll provide more of a clue of where your head's at or what you're working on. Uh, and speaking of the Gothic, I, I detect a strong strain of that in our first chunk of books, uh, beginning with Vathek by William Beckford. And this is the Oxford World's Classics Edition, edited by uh, Thomas Kamer. Uh, before you uh, have uh, your footnote-related complaint, uh, tell people what Vathek is. Uh, Vathek is one of the earlier Gothics. It was uh, written in uh 1786 by and large you can certainly get a lot of pushback you have to have whole books on when it exactly was written but william beckford was a young uh zillionaire he uh, got a sugar fortune and was i i think kind of a kind of a problem child already but he certainly had a big powerful degenerate imagination and so he combined the gothic with the Arabian Nights sensibility, because the Arabian Nights had just been translated into French in 1710, I think, and then was beginning to percolate through uh, intellectual Europe. And he decided to make his own Arabian Night because none of them were creepy enough. And this is the story of the Caliph, Vathek, who encounters the devil and uh, falls gleefully into hell. And it is the gleeful fallingness that basically makes up the book. Uh, there's also, you know, some innocent fair maidens being debauched. And Beckford was interested in the innocent fair boy that was also being debauched. He was an equal opportunity debaucher, was our man Beckford. And, uh, it's a, it's a classic. It has a wide variety of textual versions because he had an, he wrote it in French because the Arabian Nights had been in French and he wanted to say, look, it's a French translation of an Arabian book, just like the Arabian Nights. He was doing the, but his French was not so good as all that. So while he was wrestling with the French, he had a friend named Samuel Henley who was doing an English translation of his French original. And, uh, if this is sounding king and yellowy, you're not wrong. And so Samuel Henley is filling the book with footnotes, learned footnotes, discoursing on the book because they're pretending it's a translated work. And Henley gets bored coming up with footnotes and just publishes his English version of Beckford's French Vathek, which Beckford has not yet published in French. Beckford flies into a rage, publishes it in French, and then runs back and in the next uh, couple of decades, comes out with his own English version that changes around Henley's footnotes to new footnotes in which Beckford makes fun of Samuel Henley. And then as people get more interested in it slowly over time, he sort of continues to add little chapters and stories. So the Vathek itself is a great sprawling nonsense of a, of a textual matter. I mean, the, the note on the text, normally that you see in the back of a penguin book, that's about a paragraph and a half. In, in a Vathek edition, it's the whole, it's a whole chapter by itself. And, uh, one of Samuel Henley's footnotes is interesting to us, the Lovecraftians, because it is from where Lovecraft got the word Al-Azif, 
which is his name for the Necronomicon or for the original Arabic Necronomicon, because Henley glosses it as the sound of nocturnal insects thought to be the howling of demons. And Lovecraft said, what a great title for a book. So off you go. And my edition of Vathek was, I believe, I want to say the Ballantine Adult Fantasy Vathek, which is a mediocre Vathek at best and has very little of that textural apparatus in it. And I thought the Oxford World Classics, it's not the absolute pinnacle, but it's still way up there. Surely they will have the right footnotes. They will have all the footnotes because how hard can it be to do two or in fact three sets of footnotes because you want Henley's footnotes, you want Beckford's footnotes, and then you want the footnotes of the actual editor, in this case, Thomas Kamer. But nope. Apparently, that's not done, so uh, Henley's footnotes are eliminated kind of at random by Thomas Kamer, which got up my nose a little bit, but it is a nicer version of Vathek than the one that I already had, so I guess it's a net win. Next, we have Tales of Glastown, Angria, and Gondal, selected early writings by the Brontes. Uh, this is also Oxford World's Classics, and the editor is Christine Alexander. And this is because, and I uh, hope I'm not spoiling uh, Kieran Gillen's lovely comic book, Die, but in book two of Die, they stumble onto the fantasy world created by the Brontes when they were all kids together there in the Bronte Parsonage. Uh, they made up a fantasy world and engaged in what might have been role-playing, might have been LARP, might have been just competitive storytelling. Where exactly you draw that line when you're bright teenagers, I'm not sure. I don't think we can draw it for our bright teenagers today, so we certainly can't do it for the Brontes uh, in the 1830s or whenever it was. And this sort of co collected universe is one of the first shared fictional universes deliberately created by one person as opposed to the Arthurian mythos or the Greek mythos, which were created by a bunch of people. Um, and so... Uh, it's interesting for that reason. It's interesting because it's, you know, the Brontes messing around with sort of pulp idiom or pre, you know, popular adventure idiom before there was pulp, really, um, and with some other strange stuff. And this book, uh, you can obviously, you can get the uh, the tales, you know, on Gutenberg or wherever else. They're way public domain. But this had a lot of, you know, a uh, encyclopedia of all the characters and places in the world. So if you wanted to use it as the setting for a game or as inspiration for the setting for a game, I think this would be a good addition to have. I have no complaints about this. Uh, in, in this case, Oxford World Classics really sort of uh, stepped up and, and did a good job. Speaking of foundational works in the public domain, we come to Complete Tales and Sketches by Edgar Allan Poe, edited and annotated by Thomas Olive Maybot. Uh, how did this, uh, surely you've got other Poe, so it must be the uh, annotations that drew you to this. I even have other annotated Poe. But as I was looking at Poe while writing uh, Tour de Lovecraft, uh, The Destinations, the second volume of Tour de Lovecraft, I noticed that uh, a lot of the people who were talking about Poe kept referring to the Mabbit annotated Poe. It was very much the standard edition of Poe for, I, I think it's still the standard edition of Poe, quite frankly. Um, and Mabbitt worked on it his whole life. He died before the final volume could be uh, put together. His wife finished it with his notes and with his uh, disciples. And so this sort of perfect Poe, uh, annotated by the absolute dean of Poe scholars, seemed like the sort of thing that I should uh, snap up if it was uh, available. And indeed, uh, there's a lovely paperback edition that is not too terribly expensive and uh, makes a delightful ornament for any library. Uh, next, we come to a uh, an author of uh, more recent vintage, 
We have Iron Castle by J.H. Rosny and Philip Jose Farmer. Yeah, J.H. Rosny is a French, uh, I think he was a journalist, but he also wrote adventure novels. Iron Castle is his novel about an American exploring Africa. The titular American is Iron Castle. Good rock-ribbed American name. Exactly. And Rosny's novel languished in obscurity because French popular novels tend to in Anglophone countries. And at some point, Philip Jose Farmer discovered it existed. Uh, in my head canon, he and uh, Brian Stableford met at a convention and were exchanging Did You Ever Hear Ofs? And uh, Philip Jose Farmer somehow talked Donnelly Wolheim books into publishing a translation and updating. And basically what uh, Philip Jose Farmer did was add more sex and take out all the praying. Because J. Rosny <laughs> thought for him to be a credible American, he would have to stop and pray every couple of uh, chapters. And Farmer thought to be a credible seller. <laughs> right. We need to not do that and also have sex. And so uh, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of interest. It's kind of interesting in where is French adventure fiction? It's super interesting in where is Philip Jose Farmer's head at? And so I'm, I'm a, I'm a low key farmer fan, not a, not a devotee necessarily, but. I think he and I have a very similar sensibility about what makes for good story. And this was uh, cheap and available. And so I, I got it because, hey, Iron Castle, good American name, like you say. From fiction to criticism, we hop to Reflections in a Glass Darkly, essays on J. Sheridan Le Fanu. This is edited by Gary William Crawford, Jim Rockhill, and Brian J. Showers. And that's just what it says on the tin. It's critical essays on Le Fanu, And there are not a ton of those. Uh, it includes things like the little squib from supernatural horror and literature. It includes some of the other, uh, foundational 20th century uh, writers on Lefanu, as well as one or two of his contemporaries. And then it has the sort of more standard academic theorizing, you know, psychological implications of green tea, that kind of stuff. So if you're a Lefanu fan, which I very much am, certainly of his horror fiction, it's, it's worth having just because you can never tell when I go back to the Carmilla well again. And uh, having critical guidance is is no bad thing. Uh, next, we have some short stories by a name that does not leap to my mind. This is The Caves of Death and Other Stories by Gertrude Franklin Horn Atherton. And uh, more more commonly known as Gertrude Atherton, uh, she was a California novelist. She was the a scion of San Francisco. Uh, her family life was unhappy and tumultuous, uh, both in her parents' uh, existence and then her brief marriage to an adventurer uh, who was famously returned to her in a cask of rum from Chile, where he had died uh, while basically squandering their money. And she said, well, that's obviously God saying I don't have to get married again. And then she went off to become uh, the voice of California, and she did it primarily in New York and England, as far from California as she could possibly get. But in a, in the course of her writing, she was a big fan of Henry James. Uh, she dedicated one of her collections of stories to him, and she wrote Jamesian, not M.R. Jamesian, Henry Jamesian uh, supernatural stories, or which also have a sort of a Beersian death, huh, inflection to them. So she's not very well known now. This is S.T. Joshi accumulated what he says are all of her weird stories. Um, I'm not sure that they're all of them, but they're certainly all the ones that I have time to read. And I'm basically picking it up because Gertrude Atherton, San Francisco novelist. At some point, she does come back to San Francisco in time for uh, 1912. Uh, she could plausibly be at the old uh, the old Atherton place. And she has a lot of uh, uh, potential as a character who has been 
out into the world and, and come back and possibly drawn Carcosa with her. So, uh, also her house is supposedly haunted by the ghost of her husband in the rum barrel. So, uh, lots of good stuff going on with Gertrude Atherton. Um, she was, uh, not by any means, uh, a, a, a flawless human being. She was a big eugenicist, for example. Uh, so she has that, uh, that little hint of castanosity as well. So I figured if there's something in the caves of death and other stories that can work its way into, uh, this setting, I, I, the least I, sh- I can do is, is read them and, and find out. Speaking of your currently gestating San Francisco based Yellow King project, we come to the shadow of the unattained, the letters of George Sterling and Clark Ashton Smith. Is edited by David E. Schultz and S.T. Josie. Yeah, I, I think everyone listening to this podcast knows who Clark Ashton Smith is, not least because we did a whole segment on him. Uh, George Sterling was the decadent poet, uh, very personally uh, modeling himself on Baudelaire in, in every respect, who Smith modeled his poetic sensibilities after. And Sterling was California's poet laureate. He was uh, very much the big deal uh, in poetry. He had a, uh, he did not have a national vogue, possibly because American poetry was very rapidly in the person of Walt Whitman and then his descendants, your Vachel Lindsay's and, and, and whatnots, marching as far and as fast away from Baudelarian preciosity as it p- could possibly go. And so, uh, the American poetic sensibility left George Sterling on a rock. Uh, George Sterling does not appreciate this and eventually drinks himself to death. But in the meantime, he and Clark Ashton Smith have a fine old time writing back and forth and dissing other poets. And so it's uh, good fun. Uh, it's a great insight into what Clark Ashton Smith is up to when he's young. There's even a little bit in the letters where he uh, says, uh, hey, I've just uh, discovered this author named H.P. Lovecraft. What do you think of this story, Dagon? And Sterling says, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, take that, H.P. Lovecraft, and also take that, George Sterling. And so it, it's interesting if you're already interested in one of the writers. I assume it's even more interesting if you are already interested in both of them. But it's a, it's a cool human document about Smith, who is the least explored of the three musketeers anyway. So I, just for that reason, I recommend picking it up. Uh, speaking of uh, pawing through people's mail, we come to H.P. Lovecraft, Letters to Family and Family Friends, edited by S.T. Joshi and David E. Schultz. This is the big one. This is the mother load, or I guess the ant load in Lovecraft's case, because most of Lovecraft's letters were not to other horrorists or even to Clark Ashton Smith. They were to his aunts back home in Providence. And this is where we get huge amounts of details of his biography, because when he's writing to his aunts, he's not necessarily shrieking about uh, non-Nordic immigrants although he does a lot of that too. He's also saying, had a good day today, went to the clothing store, bought a necktie, you know, your sort of day-to-day life with H.P. Lovecraft. And uh, the letters have uh, languished. Some of the letters to uh, Lillian Clark, his his aunt, uh, showed up in selected letters, but the vast majority of them did not. This is a two-volume set. It's something like 900 or 1,000 pages altogether. So it is going to be... A, a rock of, at the very least, scholarship. And who knows, there may be a nugget or two, uh, because, of course, it was his Aunt Lillian who was the uh, caretaker of the Shund House in 1920, which is how Lovecraft learned the Shund House existed. I, I mean, I guess he knew because it was in his city, but he learned the details from Aunt Lillian. So we have possibly 
uh, one or two insights into his fiction as well as uh, his day-to-day life. Uh, still on the weird fiction tip, we come to Don't Dream, the collected horror and fantasy of Donald Wandry. Uh, Donald Wandry is one of the people who is a not a contemporary of Lovecraft, but like the generation after. He's a close contemporary of August Derleth. And in fact, Wandry is who originally partners up with Derleth to found Arkham House. And then uh, after a series of ridiculous squabbles, Probably some some blame accrues to both sides. It basically just turned into a Durleth show. But Wandry was a you know a, a, a successful writer in his own right. He was very much influenced by Lovecraft, although only one or two of these stories are uh, Cthulhu mythos, quote unquote. Uh, more of them are just sort of good old pulp horror of the uh, of, of the sort that you read about in, in your weird tales and in other sort of uh, low rent science fiction magazines at the time. I mean, you can tell how much I value Donald Wandry by the fact this is the first Wandry collection. No, I take that back. I have a smaller Wandry collection somewhere in my pile, but this is the first time I've actually hunted it down. But in fairness, it's a very recent collection. I think it's also the first time all of the Wandry horror has been collected in one book anyway. So everyone is sort of picking up, uh, unconsidered trifles, and in this case, Donald Wandry. Some of them are good. The Tree Men of Mbois, I think, has a is sort of the one that you might have heard of if you've heard of any of them. Uh, and of course, he wrote uh, the Fire Vampires, invented them for a story called the Flame Vampires, which, uh, when you read about it, has very little to do with Lovecraft and a great deal to do with bad SF. But it's you know it's good fun and uh, you know again ho- fills a hole in the shelf. We're still with uh, contributors to uh, the uh, Lovecraft and Lovecraft-adjacent weird fiction tradition, this time still very much with us. Uh, we have Ramsey Campbell's Visions from Brichester. And this is the opposite of Wandry and the or Campbell... Brister, right? Yeah, yeah Brister, I'm sure. Um, Ramsey Campbell is the greatest Lovecraftian writer, possibly since Lovecraft, certainly the heir to the mantle, and a great uh, horror writer in his own idiom. These stories are the Lovecraftian stories that were not part of his original collection. So he came out with a collection when he was 18 called uh, The Inhabitant of the Lake and uh, Less Welcome Tenants. And that was a, a big you know neutron bomb that was set off in Lovecraftian publishing. And it sort of by itself almost kickstarted the, the Lovecraft revival in the, in the 60s, which became the 70s, which became... This is a seminal work. This is all of the other stories besides that that Campbell has written in the Lovecraftian mode, uh, all the way down to his very recent uh, novella, The Last Revelation of Glocky, um, which is a wonderful story in and of itself. It's in another collection um, as well. But the PS publishing guys have been sort of Ramsey Campbell's house publisher for a long time. They they really do them well. There's a very smart editorial material. Campbell contributes uh, bibliographical essays and, you know, what I was thinking when I wrote this type stuff. Uh, this also has first drafts of some of his stories, uh, cold print and Franklin paragraphs, Franklin paragraphs for my money. One of the greatest stories of the uncanny of the century, much less in Lovecraft space. And then he also has a bunch of Lovecraftian limericks in it. So this is a whole tour uh, through the uh, Ramsey Campbell Lovecraft head. Uh, he has a few Lovecraftian novels that are not part of this, but this is all the short fiction and is just worth picking up regardless. I would unhesitatingly recommend this to anybody who's uh, a Mythos fan or a fan of Ramsey Campbell. And you should be both, quite frankly. Detecting a, uh, a new strata where we're uh, finding things that are uh, informing 
your ancient uh, Greek 5th edition uh, project that you're working on. Uh, We start with Ancient Geography, the Discovery of the World in Classical Greece and Rome by Dwayne W. Roller. Uh, This is not so much a work of original scholarship as it is a really good literature review. It pulls together what uh, other scholars know about what the Greeks uh, knew about the world and its geography. And Roller has written very well about Pythias of Massilia. He has what I consider a good attitude for, for my purposes in that he is very fond of ascribing things to the Greeks that other scholars don't necessarily do, or they think were not as big a deal. So when he talks about uh, Strabo's voyage around the coast of Spain and Gaul, he, he really leans into it in a way that uh, other people say, well, he probably didn't do that. He just made it up like a, like a geographer does. So I, I feel like Roller is credible, but he's credible on the good side of credible. And also, like I say, it's literature review. So it's a primer. You don't have to dig too deep into the weeds if you don't want to. Uh, with the book. I mean, obviously, I also want to dig deep into the weeds, but because he is a scholar, there's lots of footnotes and I can follow those to the actual publications. It's a map to the I weeds. Want. Exactly. Exactly. Next, we have The Land of the Elephant King, Space, Territory, and Ideology in the Seleucid Empire by Paul J. Cosman. Paul J. Cosman is probably the best mind in the sense of the most original big thinker working in Hellenistic studies right now. He did a previous book about the nature of time conceived of as a serial series of events as opposed to a cyclical series of reigns, pointing out that the Seleucids are the first people to put a calendar that doesn't restart when the new king takes over. It's the first calendar that starts from a certain uh, year zero and moves forward. He's the first person to notice that they're the first person to do it, apparently. And then everything uh, goes from there. So the Land of the Elephant Kings talks about since the Seleucids don't have a a blood connection to their empire the way that the kings of Macedon do, and they don't have a geographically constrained, easy-to-run empire like the Ptolemies do, what held the Seleucid Empire together? And for a long old time, historians said, well, nothing. The Seleucids are the, are the Zeppo of the uh, Hellenistic empires. We don't care about them. Also, a lot of them grew up reading the Book of Maccabees and knew that the Seleucids were the bad guys. So Cosman is working off other scholars that have said, look, the empire lasted 300 years. Something had to be keeping it together. What was that? And in this case, he's talking about specifically how did the Seleucids build a concept of this is our empire. The rest of it is not our empire. How did they tell themselves that? How did they tell their subjects that? And then how did they express a governing ideology in a uh, culture that was not bound uh, by blood to a specific location? It was entirely colonists and settlers. And so Cosman basically just breaks down royal progresses. He talks about Seleucid uh, uh, sponsored colonies and explorers and cartographers. And it's just a full on look at the Seleucid understanding of their own space and their own empire. It's very, very smart and very, very good. And unlike Roller, if you don't care about the Seleucids, you should not start reading this book because I don't think that Paul Cosman will make you care about the Seleucids. But if you care a little bit about the Seleucids, he will show you how much more you can care about them. And that's really good. And also, it's full of uh, of footnotes back to original historical sources that I didn't have already. Well, it's time to uh, take a little break to uh, sneak in another exciting commercial message. And we'll be back with the second half of your bookshelf.
Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%, to the hard-scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt, from the abusive warrens of the Internet, to the lonely chambers of every human heart, from the toxic legacy of the Cold War, to the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in, there is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. And as promised, I wouldn't lie to you, uh, we are back, uh, and we're going to start with Stealing the Mystic Lamb, the true story of the world's most coveted masterpiece by Noah Charney. Ken, what is the world's most coveted masterpiece? Why, it's the Ghent Altarpiece by our old buddy Jan von Eck. And when I was doing the research on uh, the Ghent uh, Altarpiece for our acclaimed segment on that topic, uh, on Jan von Eck's uh, espionage career, this book showed up in the various Google searches, and it showed out very, very inexpensively on Amazon. And I am a big fan of art theft, not narratives. I'm not a fan of the concept of art theft. I just like <laughs> stories about art theft. Yeah, so you're not committing any art theft. I'm you're not committing art theft. Although, if you work at a museum and you have Lorado Taft sculptures that your museum is not keeping an eye on, at me. Um, anyhow, the, the Ghent altarpiece has been stolen a lot, apparently. Uh, Charney says uh, it is the most stolen masterpiece, and I'm not sure how you would uh, quantify that, but it certainly was lifted, adulterated, fiddled with, and generally messed with uh, a bunch of different times, as is the nature of our world. Most of the attention is given to the fact that it was looted by the Nazis because the Nazis are the only ones idiot enough to leave records about all the looting they did. <laughs> well, they're, they're very systematic about their horrific crimes. Everyone else cleverly covered up the evidence of their art theft. And so he has to put it together uh, from a few uh, sources. It's almost like those guys didn't think they were ever going to get caught. And you know what? The the cathedral also does not keep a lot of big records on who's stolen our masterpiece. So it's really kind of a, a bunch of pieces of a puzzle of an art theft story uh, ending up with the hated Nazis uh, stealing a stealing the, the Ghent altarpiece. So it's not quite what it says on the tin, but it is pretty great. And it was certainly uh, worth the five ninety nine or whatever it was I, I spent for it on Z shops. So fun art theft. Our buddy Jan von Eck and uh, the, the monuments men going out and rescuing the Ghent altarpiece from Goering's uh, pudgy eclair stained fingers. So what's not to what's not to love? Uh, next we have Man of Arms: The Life and Legend of Sir Basil Zaharoff by Anthony Alfrey. And this was a book that I um, uh, Basil Zaharoff. Uh, if you are a conspiracy theorist of a certain vintage, you have run across his name as the lead of a group of merchants of death. And these are the international arms dealers who it was maintained seriously. And in front of two great parliamentary bodies, magicked us into world war one as a way to sell more weapons. This is not to put it too impolitely balderdash, but it was a big theory. And so Basil Zaharoff being a foreigner and a mysterious one at that 
is always pinned as the guy and uh, a certain stripe of people try to uh, uh, insinuate that he was Jewish. Uh, He was Greek, but uh, Basil Zaharoff himself was not above claiming to be Jewish if he thought it would get him a meeting with the Rothschilds because Basil Zaharoff was a big old liar. So between people making up lies about Basil Zaharoff and Basil Zaharoff making up big old lives to get arms sale. Was he an international swindler with a checkered career? He was not so much a swindler. He was more of a brilliant arms uh, deal. He was a salesman. He was always closing, Robin. That's that's what he was doing. And his career was checkered-ish, you know, like like everybody's. But it did, you know, move from uh, success to success. He was uh, he was not bouncing around Europe on phony passports, but he was bouncing around Europe and, and maybe starting one or two little wars. So he's a fun guy. There's a big mythology about him. Uh, he's the villain in Riley Ace of Spies from the 80s, played by the great Leo McKern. And there are so many books about him. And I I was trying to figure out what book was going to give me the largest amount of the nonsense and then the most sober repudiation of the nonsense. And uh, I picked all free based on various reviews of all the various books. There aren't that many modern ones, which is part of what made it easy. But all free, it turns out, is a guy who is a Zaharoff stan. He believes Zaharoff is more sinned against than sinning. And just because a guy cheats on his wife and sells arms to both sides of a Balkan conflict doesn't make him a bad person. It just makes him misunderstood. And then he doesn't have an index in his book, which is always the worst thing about books about spies or the secret world anyway. Uh, It's still a good book. It's a solid biography of Zaharoff. I don't mean to uh, dismiss Alfre entirely, but it's not the book I thought I was getting when I did get it. So caveat emptor as... Basil Zaharoff never said while selling a submarine. <laughs> uh, next, we have Katanga, nineteen sixty to sixty-three, mercenary spies in the African nation that waged war on the world by Christopher Ofen. Katanga is the southern, uh, uh, southeastern uh, province of uh, the Congo, form- formerly Zaire, formerly the Congo, formerly the Belgian Congo. This uh, province, when uh, the Congo became independent of Belgium, looked at who was running it at that time, Patrice Lumumba, and said. Uh, we would rather not be run by Patrice Lumumba. He seems sort of communisty to us. And since the Katanga was where all the uh, valuable minerals were, they were able to pay a lot of mercenaries to enforce their point of view. And the United Nations decreed no one gets to rebel against a new African country that will turn the whole continent into a charnel pit. We're going to stop this right now. And so they wanted to make an example of Katanga. And in the course of Katangan independence fighting. Uh, Lumumba was uh, killed uh, by the Belgians, although the CIA was just right there behind him to do it if the Belgians didn't do it, and was taken over by Mobutu Sisi Siko, who had every fault in the universe except communism. And so he gets the CIA backing, and that was all she wrote for Katanga. So uh, Katanga basically ends its revolutionary war because no one's got uh, no one supporting it anymore. And the head of Katanga becomes the prime minister of Congo, uh, realizes that that is a death trap, and then is, in fact, arrested and sent to Algeria uh, by Mobutu's forces. And so that was the end of Katanga. But the story sort of lives on in various narratives of the Cold War and in the song Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner. So if you remember the the part where he's in the Congo, that's Katanga. That's what's happening. Next, we have the Biafra story, the making of an African legend by Frederick Forsyth. Uh, Frederick Forsyth, better known, of course, as a spy novelist, uh, author of The Day of the Jackal and other top-notch spy thrillers, began his career 
some would say as an MI6 asset, others would say as a journalist, and a third person would say, why not both? Uh, but he was in Biafra seeing the uh, gigantic human tragedy wrecked on another uh, secessionistic part of a badly governed African country, and uh, the degree to which the British government was actively collaborating with the terror famines, murderers, and bombers of innocent civilian populations, which is why Frederick Forsyth had to take up spy noveling instead of working for either uh, The Observer, which I think was the newspaper he was working for at the time, or MI6. And this is his, I'm writing this on the airfield and maybe I will die before I get to finish this book, book. And then there's like a, a chapter that's, I got off the airfield, but no one else in Biafra did. And I'm still mad about that chapter. And then, uh, that was basically, uh, I think his first book and it published in a, a print run of nothing because the British government did not want that book published. And then it got re-released fairly recently as Forsyth has become a name that will sell anything. And, uh, I picked it up because it was re-released and I'd always wanted to read, uh, Forsyth's version of the Biafra story, uh, which is deeply discreditable to basically everyone with the possible exception of the guy running Biafra, who again, did not have a prayer of winning. And so you, I guess you could argue, don't start a fight. You're going to lose dramatically, but what can you do? It's Biafra. So, uh, that was, uh, worth getting just for that. Uh, and also for getting to read early, early, very, very angry Forsyth narrative. Next we have, uh, Landscapes of Fear by Yi Fu Tuan. All right. This is uh, one of those books, in this case by a geographer, a cultural geographer, that attempts to understand why it is we have horror stories. And Tuan goes all the way back to caveman times, and uh, there's a little bit of evolutionary psychology, but not a lot. It's mostly night and predators are scary. How do we respond to that? He talks about the horrors of disease. Uh, he talks about witches and ghosts. He talks about uh, the difference between country fears and city fears, which was very interesting. And then he gets to the point of people who build landscapes of fear, not necessarily uh, horror writers, but in this case, uh, governments and how they create things that are meant to break your spirit. And so it's sort of a broad notion of things that make us scared and how that iterates mostly across space and place, but also uh, unavoidably uh, in the mind. But since he's a geographer, not a psychologist, uh, it's weirdly more accessible. And while it's still not, I think, what anyone would call science, it's at least an, an interesting bunch of essays that talk about it. His, his argument, I think, as a geographer is that fear is a constant and, uh, defending yourself against fear is naturally human. And so therefore your job is to do it as well and as intelligently as you can. Uh, speaking of fears, uh, we have Inside the Outbreaks, The Elite Medical Detectives of the Epidemic Intelligence Service by Mark Pendergrast. Yeah, Mark Pendergrast is one of those guys. He's a uh, nonfiction uh, writer. He did a terrific corporate history of Coca-Cola that I read eons ago, and he just keeps turning them out, whatever uh, his agent or he thinks are going to move copies. He's a, a very good, strong uh, professional writer. He knows how to go get his sources, so the books are all... Uh, sourced to a fairly well. Basically, if you care about a topic and Mark Prendergast has written something on it, you're going to do well. And in this case, yes, you do do well. As perhaps people will remember, back at the very beginning of, of the quarantine, no one knew anything. And there was lots of uh, discussion about previous outbreaks uh, and epidemics. One of them 
was the Hong Kong flu outbreak in 1968. And I thought, ooh, that's fall of Delta Greenable. What happens to the Hong Kong flu? And I looked into it and it turns out the Epidemic Intelligence Service was out there on the front lines. And that made me think, well, there's a fall of Delta Green group just ready to exist. And I got the Mark Pendergast book on it, wrote a page XX about the EIS and uh, thought myself happy. And indeed I was because it's a, it's a, it's a good book. It does, it doesn't have the recency bias, uh, that a lot of, uh, books about government action or, or anything have. He, he got some memoirs of people who are at the founding and people who are in the middle of the career. So there's a, a broad spectrum of anecdotes and, and stories and attempts to understand what's going on. It's not a super rigorous bureaucratic history, but as far as I'm concerned, that's all to the good because it's gives you more, uh, cool stories about going to, plague graveyards in Bolivia and snipping off human pinkies, uh, that kind of thing. So uh, absolutely good to read if you're looking to play or play with uh, the Epidemic Intelligence Service. Uh, next, we have Narco Corrido, A Journey into the Music of Drugs, Guns, and Gorillas by Elijah Wald. This uh, Narco Corrido are songs about uh, basically about drug dealers. Uh, they are mostly they come out of uh, the border songs. Uh, the Corridos. Um, and the border songs are about, uh, they're, they're Mexican folk songs, basically, uh, or Mexican popular songs that are about life on the border. And isn't it awful if you want to go north, but you know, if you go north, you'll be beaten up by a bunch of gringos. And it, it's sort of a, an inherently tragic genre, but there's, you know, chances to get your own back in, in the way of, of, of popular music everywhere. Very similar in, in a lot of ways to Irish uh, popular music, because again, you've got a, enormous colonial power that cares nothing about you. And it's, it's, it, it makes for good songs. If, if nothing else, uh, the narco Corridos uh, began uh, specifically about the drug trade, because that was one of the few areas in which they could be feeling like they got a little more of their own back. Then the drug traffickers themselves realized people are writing songs about us. And in the same way that American mafioso uh, began modeling themselves after uh, the Godfather, Mexican drug traffickers began modeling themselves after these songs and indeed bankrolling people to write court songs about their own exploits. And it's a fascinating interplay of criminality and uh, art. And uh, Elijah Wald wrote the book that I previously consumed, uh, How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll. So I knew that he was a good writer and uh, I am not all the way through it because it is very much the then I went to this place and met this Narco Corrido singer and is not a ton about uh, here's the story of the genre from the 1940s to now uh, that I was hoping it would be. But it there's good there's good information in there. It's just told in a in a format that I'm less patient with. So we're uh, heading back around to your San Francisco research with The Barbary Coast by Herbert Asbury. I mean, not a lot to say about this one. Herbert Asbury, of course, famously wrote Gangs of New York, the quote-unquote history that Scorsese based the movie on, uh, and then turned that into a cottage industry of writing about the seamy side of other cities. This is about the Barbary Coast, the legendary hive of scum and villainy in San Francisco, mostly before the earthquake and a little bit after the earthquake, all the way down to say, oh, I don't know, 1912 when I'm uh, setting my uh, setting. So I real this is one of those books that I could have sworn I owned, but I went and I looked in true crime. I looked in San Francisco, which is in lesser cities that are not Chicago or London. Didn't have it. Fortunately, vastly, vastly overprinted in the wake of the, of the New York movie. So easy to find used. And again, Entirely unreliable, but good for uh, period color and uh, vivid prose. Uh, that's Herbert Asbury in a nutshell. Uh, next, we have a guide to mysterious San Francisco, Dr. Weird's Weird Tours by Dr. Weird. And 
those of you searching for it need to know that that's Dr. Weird with an E near the beginning and another E on the end. Yeah, this is a tour guide to San Francisco, but it's written by a uh, illuminated weirdo, as you can tell by the fact that his name is Weird. So there are literally uh, little icons with an eye in the pyramid that he puts where he thinks there's a conspiracy happening going on, uh, such as the attempted assassination of Gerald Ford that happened in San Francisco. There it is. It's up there. Lots of fun facts. This is the sort of thing that he's giving you the guide to. It's not necessarily, uh, you know, one of the best hotels, but that information all becomes irrelevant. But murder sites are murder sites forever. So it's not a cheap book, but it's certainly for your one-stop shop for uh, occult, strange, messed up San Francisco. It's pretty good. The only downside, of course, is that a lot of it happened after 1912, but that's not Dr. Weird's fault. That's San Francisco's fault. Uh, next, we have Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s by Tom O'Neill. I think a lot of people may have seen the the big publicity blurb that came out. Tom O'Neill was hired by, I want to say, Preview Magazine. It was some magazine long ago to do a 10-year anniversary article about the Manson killings, or maybe it was 20 years, but it was a long time ago, 70s or 80s. And he outlasted the magazine, the magazine that hired him to pick up the pieces and continue it. And I think two publishing contracts, basically just as he drilled deeper and deeper and deeper into his conviction that the CIA created Charles Manson as a byblow of Project MK Ultra, and that uh, if he could just find someone who was willing to go on the record to testi- testify to this farrago of nonsense, he could turn it into an article and be and have his curse exorcised. I think finally, uh, people just stopped saying, you know, keep working, and they said, stop working. Uh, he, there's a co-author that's credited who I think was probably the guy whose job was just to take his computer away. Just to organize the corkboard. Exactly. And so it's a, it, it's a inconclusive history of Charles Manson and an inconclusive history of MK Ultra and a towering, uh, it, it's sort of like the, the movie Zodiac only in book form, except about the Manson killings, but it's about, uh, becoming obsessed with a case and destroying yourself over it. And it's just that Tom O'Neill doesn't know that's what it's about necessarily. And then finally, appropriately enough, we come to The Beginning Was the End by Oscar Kiss Merth. And this book is a, uh, I want to, I want to say it's a timeless classic, but I don't know that it's well enough known to be a timeless classic in that I just found out about it during this nonsense. And I forget where I found out about it, but the thesis of the book is that human intelligence was caused by eating the brains of other humans. And that way back in Neanderthal times or caveman times, a uh, early caveman discovered that not only did he become more intelligent and aggressive after eating the brain of his fallen foe, but also he got better sex. And that's the thing that drove all of human cultural evolution is brain cannibalism. This all sounds very provable. It does. And the best part is he wrote it in a Japanese monastery with no library. He just, you know, sort of like vomited all forth all the, all the supporting evidence and everything else that's in the book. Not, a, not assembled with, with your conventional resources, Robin. This was channeled. Resources somehow. just hold you back. Right. And I think it came up because I think it sort of is, like the, the two steps, you know, kept in the attic great uncle of the QAnon conspiracy, which God knows we're not going to talk about today, possibly never. But uh, I think that the notion of eating human brains to get superpowers comes not necessarily just from the TV show Heroes, but also from our buddy Oscar Kiss Merth 
and his uh, weird bookless room in a Japanese monastery. That's unfair. He probably brought some books into the monastery. He just was stuck with the ones he brought in. And if that's not a, a metaphor for the whole process, I don't know what is. <laughs> I think that's even a metaphor for this podcast, Ken. So, exactly. Uh, once we've hit that, of course, it's time to uh, shimmy on out of here. So uh, uh, we'll be back over next week with some similar, uh, perhaps even inspired by some of uh, these entries or your other reading uh, nonsense. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagel. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Stop cyber pigs from stopping this podcast by joining such protective backers as... Linda and Mike Schiffer. Peter Nix. Philip Masters. Ludovic Shabbat. And Monster Talk. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Celebrate the bookhound in your life with our latest design, Three Points in Library Use. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>